CD 9. You know, this was an, an extremely good idea, said the bursar, as tiny images moved in the crystal ball. What an excellent way to see things. Uh, could we, perhaps, have a look at the Opera House? How about the Skunk Club in Brewer Street, said the senior wrangler. Why, said the bursar. Just a thought, said the senior wrangler, quickly. I've never been in there at all, in any way, you, you understand? We, we really shouldn't be doing this, said the lecturer in recent runes. It's really not, not a proper use of a magic crystal. I can't think of a better use of a magic crystal, said the dean, than to see people playing music with rocks in. The duck man, Coffin Henry, Arnold Sideways, Foul Old Ron, and Foul Old Ron Smell, and Foul Old Ron's dog, ambled around the edges of the crowd. Pickings had been particularly good. They always were when Dibbler's hot dogs were on sale. There were some things people wouldn't even eat under the influence of music with rocks in. There were some things even mustard couldn't disguise. Arnold gathered up the scraps and put them in a basket on his trolley. There was going to be the prince of a primal soup under the bridge tonight. The music had poured over them. They ignored it. Music with rocks in was the stuff of dreams, and there were no dreams under the bridge. Then they'd stopped and listened as new music poured out over the park and took every man and woman and thing by the hand and showed him or her or it the way home. The beggars stood and listened, mouths open. Someone looking from face to face, as if anyone did look at the invisible beggars, would have had to turn away. Except for Mr Scrub. You couldn't turn away there. When the band were playing music with rocks in again, the beggars got back down to earth. Except for Mr Scrub. He just stood and stared. The last note rang out. Then, as the tsunami of applause began to roll, the band ran off into the darkness. Dibbler watched happily from the wings at the other side of the stage. He'd been a bit worried for a while there, but it all seemed back on course now. Someone tugged at his sleeve. What are they doing, Mr Dibbler? Dibbler turned. Scum, isn't it? he said. It's crash, Mr Dibbler. What they're doing, scum, is not giving the audience what they want, said Dibbler. Superb business practice. Wait till they're screaming for it and then take it away. You wait. By the time the crowd is stamping its feet, they'll come back prancing on again. Superb timing. When you learn that sort of trick, scum, it's crash, Mr Dibbler. Then maybe you'll know how to play music with Roxine. Music with Roxine, scum, crash... Isn't just music, said Dibbler, pulling some cotton wool out of his ears. It's lots of things. Don't ask me how. Dibbler lit a cigar. The din made the match flame flicker. Any minute now, he said. You'll see. There was a fire that had been made of old boots and mud. A grey shape circled it, snuffling excitedly. Get on, get on, get on. Mr Dibbler's not going to like this, moaned Ashfelt. Tough one for Mr. Dibbler, said Glod, as they hauled Buddy into the cart. Now I want to see those hoofs spark. Know what I mean? Head for Quirm, said Buddy, as the cart jerked into motion. He didn't know why, it just seemed the right destination. Not a good idea, said Glod. People who probably want to ask questions about that cart are pulled out of the swimming pool. Head towards Quirm. Mr. Dibbler's really not going to like this, said Ashfelt as the cart swung out onto the road. Any moment now, said Dibbler. I expect so, said Crash, because they're stamping their feet, I think.
There was indeed a certain thumping under the cheers. You wait, said Dibbler. They'll judge it just right. No problem. Ah! You're supposed to put your cigar in your mouth the other way round, Mr. Dibbler, said Crash meekly. The waxing moon lit the landscape as the cart bounced out of the gates and along the Quirm Road. How did you know I've got the cart made ready? said Glod, as they landed after a brief flight. I didn't, said Buddy. But you ran out. Yes. Why? It was just time. Why do you want to go to Querm? said Cliff. I... I can get a boat home, can't I? said Buddy. That's right. A boat home. Glod glanced at the guitar. This felt wrong. It couldn't just end, and then they'd just walk away. He shook his head. What could go wrong now? Mr. Dibbler's really not going to like this, moaned Ashfelt. Oh, shut up, said Glod. I don't know what he's not going to like. Well, for a start, said Ashfelt, the main thing, the thing he won't like most, is, um, we've got the money. Cliff reached down under the seat. There was a dull clinking noise of the sort made by a lot of gold keeping nice and quiet. The stage was trembling with the vibration of the stamping. There was some shouting now. Dibbler turned to Crash and grinned horribly. Hey, I've just had a great idea, he said. A tiny shape swarmed up the road from the river. Ahead of it, the lights of the stage glowed in the dusk. The Arch-Chancellor nudged Ponder and flourished his staff. Now, he said, if there's a sudden rip in, in reality and horrible screaming things come through, our job is to... He scratched his head. What is it the Dean says? Uh, kick a righteous donkey. Some righteous ass, sir, said Ponder. He says, kick some righteous ass. Ridcully peered at the empty stage. I don't see one, he said. The four members of the band sat up and stared straight ahead over the moonlit plain. Finally, Cliff broke the silence. How much? Best part of five thousand dollars. Five thousand dollars? Cliff clamped his huge hand over Glod's mouth. Why? said Cliff as the dwarf squirmed. I got a bit confused, said Ashfelt. Sorry. We'll never get far enough said Cliff. You know that, not even if we die. I tried to tell you all, Ashfelt moaned. Maybe, maybe we could take it back. How can we do that? Claude, said Cliff in a reasonable tone of voice, I'm going to take my hand away, and you're not to shout, right? Okay. Take it back! Five thousand dollars! I suppose some of that is ours, said Cliff, tightening his grip. I know I haven't had any wages, said Ashfelt. Let's get to Querm, said Buddy urgently. We can take out what's ours and send the rest back to him. Cliff scratched his chin with his free hand. Some of it belongs to Chryso, praise, said Ashfelt. Mr. Dibbler borrowed some money off him to set up the festival. We won't get away from him, said Cliff, except if we drive all the way to the rim and chuck ourselves over. Even then, only maybe. We could... we could explain, couldn't we? said Ashfelt. A vision of Chryso praise's gleaming marble head formed in their vision. Oof. No! Quirm, then, said Buddy. 
Cliff's diamond teeth glittered in the moonlight. I thought, he said, I thought I heard something on the road back there. Sounded like harness. The invisible beggars began to wander away from the park. Foul old Ron's smell had stayed on for a while because it was enjoying the music, and Mr Scrub still hadn't moved. We got nearly twenty sausages, said Arnold sideways. Coffin Henry coughed a cough with bones in it. <sighs> Bugger em said foul old Ron. I told him, spying on me with rays. Something bounded across the trodden turf towards Mr. Scrub, ran up his robe and grabbed either side of his hood with both paws. There was the hollow sound of two skulls meeting. Mr. Scrub staggered backwards. Squeak! Mr. Scrub blinked and sat down suddenly. The beggars stared down at the little figure jumping up and down on the cobbles. Being of an invisible nature themselves, they were naturally good at seeing things unseen by other men, or in the case of foul old Ron, by any known eyeball. "'That's a rat,' said Duckman. "'Bugger it,' said foul old Ron. The rat pranced in circles on its hind legs, squeaking loudly. Mr. Scrub blinked again, and Death stood up. "'I have to go,' he said. "'Squeak!' Death strode away, stopped, and came back. He pointed a skeletal finger at the duckman. Why, he said, are you walking around with that duck? What duck? Ah, sorry. Listen, how can it go wrong, said Crash, waving his hands frantically. It's got to work. Everyone knows that when you get your big chance because the star is ill or something, then the audience will go mad for you. It happens every time, right? Jimbo, Noddy and Scum peered around the curtain at the pandemonium. They nodded uncertainly. Of course things always went well when you had your big chance. We could do anarchy in Ankh-Morpork, pork, said Jimbo doubtfully. We, we haven't got that right, said Noddy. Yeah, but there's nothing new about that. I suppose we could give it a try. Excellent, said Crash. He raised his guitar defiantly. We can do it for the sake of sex and drugs and music with rocks in it. He was aware of their disbelieving stares. You never said you'd had any drugs, said Jimbo accusingly. If it comes to that, said Noddy, I don't reckon you've ever had any... One out of three ain't bad, shouted Crash. Yes, it is. It's only 33%. Shut up! People were stamping their feet and clapping their hands derisively. Ridcully squinted along his staff. Uh, there was the holy Saint Bobby, he said. I suppose he was a righteous ass, come to think about it. Sorry, said Ponder. He was a donkey, said Ridcully, hundreds of years ago. Got made a bishop in the Omnian church for carrying some holy man, I believe. Mm, can't get more righteous than that. No, 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 Arch-Chancellor, said Ponder. It's just a sort of military saying. It means the, you know, sir... Backside. I wonder how we tell which bit that is, Ridcully said. The creatures from the dungeon dimensions have legs and things all over the place. I don't know, sir, said Ponder wearily. Perhaps we'd better just kick everything to be on the safe side. Death caught up with the rat near Brass Bridge. No one had disturbed Albert since he was in the gutter. He'd become nearly as invisible as Coffin Henry. Death rolled his sleeve up. His hand moved through the fabric of Albert's coat, as if it was mist. 
Daft old fool, always took it with him, he muttered. I can't imagine what he thought I'd do with it. The hand came out, cupping a fragment of curved glass. A pinch of sand glittered on it. Thirty-four seconds, said Death. He handed the glass to the rat. Find something to put this in, and don't drop it. He stood up and surveyed the world. There was the glong, glong, glong noise of an empty beer bottle bouncing on the stones as the death of rats trotted back out of the mended drum. Thirty-four seconds of sand orbited slightly erratically inside it. Death hauled his servant to his feet. No time was passing for Albert. His eyes were glazed, his body clock idled. He hung from his master's arm like a cheap suit. Death snatched the bottle from the rat and tilted it gently. A bit of life began to flow. "'Where is my granddaughter?' he said. "'You have to tell me, otherwise I can't know.' Albert's eyes clicked open. "'She's trying to save the boy, master,' he said. "'She doesn't know the meaning of the word duty.' Death tipped the bottle back. Albert froze in mid-sentence. "'But we do, don't we?' said Death bitterly. "'You and me.' He nodded to the death of rats. "'Look after him.' he said. Death snapped his fingers. Nothing happened apart from the click. Uh, this is very embarrassing. She has some of my power. I do seem momentarily unable to, uh... The death of rats squeaked helpfully. No, you look after him. I know where they're going. History likes cycles. Death looked at the towers of Unseen University rising over the rooftops. And somewhere in this town is a horse I can ride. Hold on, something's coming, Ridcully glared at the stage. What are they? Ponda stared. I think they, they may be human, sir. The crowd had stopped stamping its collective feet and was watching in a sullen, this had better be good, silence. Crash stepped forward with a big, mad, glossy grin on his face. Yes, but any minute they'll split down the middle and ghastly creatures will come out, said Ridcully, hopefully. Crash hefted his guitar and played a chord. My word, said Ridcully. Sir, that sounded exactly like a cat trying to go to the lavatory through a sewn-up bum. Ponder looked aghast. Sir, you're not telling me you ever... No, but that's what it'd sound like, sure enough. Exactly like that. The crowd hovered, uncertain of this new development. Hello, Unc Morpork, said Crash. He nodded at Scum, who hit his drums at the second attempt. And supporting bands launched into its first, and in the event, last number. Three last numbers, in fact. Crash was trying for Anarchy and Unc Morpork. Jimbo had frozen because he couldn't see himself in a mirror and was playing the only page he could remember from Blurt Weedown's book, which was the Index and Noddy had got his fingers caught in the strings. As far as Scum was concerned, Tune's names were things that happened to other people. He was concentrating on the rhythm. Most people don't have to, but for Scum, even clapping his hands was an exercise in concentration, so he played in a small, contented world of his own, and didn't even notice the audience rise like a bad meal and hit the stage. Sergeant Colon and Corporal Nobbs were on duty at the Diocil Gate, sharing a comradely cigarette and listening to the distant roar of the festival. "'Sounds like a big night,' said Sergeant Colon. "'Right enough, Sarge.' 
Sounds like some trouble. Good job we're out of it, Sarge. A horse came clattering up the street, its rider struggling to keep on. As it got closer, they made out the contorted features of C.M.O.T. Dibbler, riding with the ease of a sack of potatoes. Did a cart just go through here? he demanded. Which one throat? said Sergeant Colon. What do you mean, which one? Well, there was two, said the sergeant. One with a couple of trolls in, and one with Mr. Cleek just after that. You know, the musicians' guild. Oh, no! Dibbler pummeled the horse into action again and bounced off into the night. What was that about? said Nobby. Someone probably owes him a penny, said Sergeant Colon, leaning on his spear. There was the sound of another horse approaching. The watchmen flattened themselves against the wall as it thundered past. It was big and white. The rider's black cloak streamed in the air, as did her hair. There was a rush of wind, and then they were gone, out onto the plains. Nobby stared after it. That was her, he said. Who? Susan Death. The light in the crystal faded to a dot and winked out. That's three days' worth of magic I won't see again, the senior wrangler complained. Worth every thalm, said the chair of indefinite studies. Not as good as seeing them live, though, said the lecturer in recent runes. There's something about the way the sweat drips on you. I thought it ended just as it was getting good, said the chair. I thought... The wizards went rigid as the howl rang through the building. It was slightly animal, but also mineral, metallic, edged like a saw. Eventually, the lecturer in recent runes said, Of course, just because we've heard a spine-chilling, blood-curling scream of the sort to make your very marrow freeze in your bones doesn't automatically mean there's anything wrong. The wizards looked out into the corridor. It came from downstairs somewhere, said the chair of indefinite studies, heading for the staircase. So why are you going upstairs? Because I'm not daft. But it might be some terrible emanation. You don't say, said the chair, still accelerating. All right, uh, please yourself. That's the student's floor up there. Ah, um... The chair came down slowly, occasionally glancing fearfully up the stairs. Look, nothing can get in, said the senior wrangler. This place is protected by very powerful spells. That's right, said recent runes. And I'm sure we've all been strengthening them periodically, as is our duty said the senior wrangler. Oh, uh, yes, yes, of course, said recent runes. The sound came again. There was a slow pulsating rhythm in the roar. The library, I think, said the senior wrangler. Anyone seen the librarian lately? He always seems to be carrying something when I see him. You don't think he's up to something occult, do you? This is a magical university. Yes, but more occult is what I mean. Keep together, will you? I am together, for if we are united, what can possibly harm us? Well, one, a great big shut-up. The dean opened the library door. It was warm and velvety quiet. Occasionally, a book would rustle its pages or clank its chains restlessly. A silvery light was coming from the stairway to the basement. There was also the occasional ooh. He doesn't sound very upset, said the bursar. The wizards crept down the steps. There was no mistaking the door. The light streamed from it. The wizards stepped into the cellar. They stopped breathing. 
It was on a raised dais in the centre of the floor with candles all around it. It was music with rocks in. A tall, dark figure skidded around the corner into Sator Square and accelerating pounded through the gateway of Unseen University. It was seen only by Modo, the dwarf gardener, as he happily wheeled his manure barrow through the twilight. It had been a good day. Most days were, in his experience. He hadn't heard about the festival. He hadn't heard about music with rocks in. Modo didn't hear about most things because he wasn't listening. He liked compost. Next to compost, he liked roses, because they were something to compost the compost for. He was by nature a contented dwarf, who took in his short stride all the additional problems of gardening in a high magical environment, such as greenfly, whitefly, and lurching things with tentacles. Proper lawn maintenance could be a real problem when things from another dimension were allowed to slither over it. Someone pounded across it and disappeared through the doorway of the library. Modo looked at the marks and said, Oh dear. The wizards started breathing again. Oh my, said the lecturer in recent runes. Rave in, said the senior wrangler. Now that's what I call music with rocks in, sighed the dean. He stepped forward with the rapt expression of a miser in a gold mine. The candlelight glittered off black and silver. There was a lot of both. Oh my, said the lecturer in recent runes. It was like some kind of incantation. I say, isn't that my nose-hair mirror? said the bursar, breaking the spell. That's my nose-hair mirror, I'm sure. Except that while the black was black, the silver wasn't really silver. It was whatever mirrors and bits of shiny tin and tinsel and wire the librarian had been able to scrounge and bend into shape. It's got the little silver frame. Why is it on that two-wheeled cart? Two wheels, one after the other? It's ridiculous. It'll fall over. Depend upon it. And where's the horse going to go, may I ask? The senior wrangler tapped him gently on the shoulder. Bursa, a word to the wizard, old chap. Yes, what is it? I think if you don't stop talking this minute, the dean will kill you. There were two small cartwheels, one behind the other, with a saddle in between them. In front of the saddle was a pipe with a complicated double curve in it so that someone sitting in the saddle would be able to get a grip. The rest was junk. Bones and tree branches and a jackdaw's banquet of gewgaws. A horse's skull was strapped over the front wheel and feathers and beads hung from every point. It was junk, but as it stood in the flickering glow it had a dark organic quality. Not exactly life, but something dynamic and disquieting and coiled and potent that was making the dean vibrate on his feet. It radiated something that suggested that, just by existing and looking like it did, it was breaking at least nine laws and twenty-three guidelines. "'Is he in love?' said the bursar. "'Make it go,' said the dean. "'It's got to go. It's meant to go.' "'Yes, but what is it?' said the Chair of Indefinite Studies. It's a masterpiece, said the Dean, a triumph. Ooh. Perhaps you have to push it along with your feet, whispered the senior wrangler. The Dean shook his head in a preoccupied way. We're wizards, aren't we? He said, I expect we could make it go. He walked around the circle. The draught from his studded leather robe made the candle flames waver and the shadows of the thing danced on the wall. The senior wrangler bit his lip. Not too certain about that, he 
said. Looks like it's got more than enough magic in it as it is. Is it, um, is it breathing, or is that just my imagination? The senior wrangler spun round and waved a finger at the librarian. You built it, he barked. The orangutan shook his head. Walk! What did he say? He said he didn't build it, he just put it together, said the dean, without turning his head. Walk! I'm going to sit on it, said the dean. The other wizards felt something draining out of their souls, and suddenly uncertainty sloshing into its place. I wouldn't do that if I were you, old chap, said the senior wrangler. You don't know where it might take you. Don't care, said the dean. He still didn't take his eyes off the thing. I mean, it's not of this world, said the senior wrangler. I've been of this world for more than seventy years, said the dean, and it is extremely boring. He stepped into the circle and put his hand on the thing's saddle. It trembled. Excuse me. The tall, dark figure was suddenly there in the doorway, and then in a few strides was in the circle. A skeletal hand dropped onto the dean's shoulder and propelled him gently but unstoppably aside. Thank you. The figure vaulted into the saddle and reached out for the handlebars. It looked down at the thing it bestrode. Some situations you had to get exactly right. A finger pointed at the dean. I need your clothes. The dean backed away. What? Give me your coat. The dean, with great reluctance, shrugged off his leather robe and handed it over. Death put it on. That was better. Now, let me see. A blue glow flickered under his fingers and spread in jagged blue lines, forming a corona at the tip of every feather and bead. We're in the cellar, said the dean. Doesn't that matter? Death gave him a look. No. Modo straightened up and paused to admire his rose bed, which contained the finest display of pure black roses he'd ever managed to produce. A high magical environment could be useful sometimes. Their scent hung on the evening air like an encouraging word. The flower bed erupted. Modo had a brief vision of flames and something arcing into the sky before his vision was blotted out by a rain of beads, feathers and soft black petals. He shook his head and ambled off to fetch his shovel. Sarge? Yes, Nobby? You know your teeth? What teeth? The teeth, like in your mouth. Oh, right, yep. What about him? How come they fit together at the back? There was a pause while Sergeant Colon prodded the recesses of his mouth with his tongue. Eh, it eh, he began and untangled himself. Interesting observation, Nobby. Nobby finished rolling a cigarette. Reckon we should shut the gates, Sarge? Made as well. With the exact minimum amount of effort, they swung the huge gates together. It wasn't much of a precaution. The keys had been lost a long time ago. Even the sign, Thank you for not invading our city, was barely readable now. I reckon we should... Colon began, and then peered down the street. What's that light? he said. And what's that making that noise? Blue light glittered on the buildings at the end of the long street. Sounds like some kind of wild animal, said Corporal Nobbs. The light resolved itself into two actinic blue lances. Colon shaded his eyes. Looks like some kind of horse or something. It's coming straight for the gates. The tortured roar bounced off the houses. Nobby, I don't think it's going to stop. 
Corporal Nobbs threw himself flat against the wall. Colon, slightly more aware of the responsibilities of rank, waved his hands vaguely at the approaching light. Don't do it! Don't do it! And then picked himself up out of the mud. Rose petals, feathers and sparks fell softly around him. In front of him, a hole in the gates sparkled blue around the edges. That's old oak, that is, he said vaguely. I just hope they don't make us pay for it out of our own money. Did you see who it was, Nobby? Nobby? Nobby edged carefully along the wall. He, uh, he had a rose in his teeth, Sarge. Yes, but would you recognise him if you saw him again? Nobby swallowed. If I didn't, Sarge, he said, it'd have to be one hell of an identity parade. I don't like this, Mr. Glod. I don't like this. Shut up and steer. But this isn't the kind of road you're supposed to go fast on. That's all right. You can't see where you're going anyway. The cart went around a corner on two wheels. It was starting to snow, a weak, wet snow that melted as soon as it hit the ground. But we're back in the hills. There's a drop down there. We'll go over the side. You want Chryso praise to catch us? Giddy up, y'all. Buddy and Cliff clung to the sides of the cart as it rocked from side to side into the darkness. Are they still behind us? Glod yelled. Can't see anything, shouted Cliff. If you stop the cart, maybe we could hear something. Yeah, but suppose we heard something really up close. Giddy up, yeah. Okay, so how about if we threw the money out? Five thousand dollars? Buddy looked over the edge of the cart. Darkness with a certain gulch-like quality, a certain suggestion of depth, was a few feet from the side of the road. The guitar twanged gently to the rhythm of the wheels. He picked it up in one hand. Strange how it was never silent. You couldn't silence it even by pressing on the strings heavily with both hands. He tried. There was the harp beside it. The strings were absolutely silent. This is daft, shouted Glod from the front. Slow down, you nearly had us over the side that time. Ashfelt hauled on the reins. The cart slowed, eventually to walking pace. That's better. The guitar screamed. The note was so high that it hit the ears like a needle. The horses jerked nervously in the shafts and then shot forward again. Hold them! I am! Glod turned around, gripping the back of the seat. Throw that thing out! Buddy gripped the guitar and stood up, moving his arm back to hurl the thing into the gorge. He hesitated. Throw it out! Cliff got to his feet and tried to take the guitar. No! Buddy whirled it around his head and caught the troll on the chin, knocking him backwards. No! Clod, slow down! And a white horse was overtaking them. A hooded shape leaned over and grabbed the reins. The cart hit a stone and was airborne for a moment before crashing back down on the road. Ashfelt heard the splintering of posts as the wheels smashed into the fence, saw the traces snap, felt the cart swing around and stop. So much happened later that Glod never did tell anyone about the sensation he had, that although the cart had definitely wedged itself uncertainly on the edge of the cliff, it had also plunged on, tumbling over and over towards the rocks. Glod opened his eyes. The image tugged at him like a bad dream, but he'd been thrown across the cart as it skewed around, and his head was lying on the backboard. He was looking straight into the gorge. Behind him, wood creaked. Someone was holding onto his leg. Who's that? he whispered, in case heavier words would send the cart over. It's me, Ashfelt. Who's that holding onto my foot? 
"'Me,' said Cliff. "'What are you holding on to, Glod?' "'Just something my flailing hand happened to snatch at,' said Glod. The cart creaked again. "'It's the gold, isn't it?' said Ashfeld. "'Admit it. You're holding on to the gold.' "'Idiot dwarf!' shouted Cliff. "'Let it go, or we're going to die.' "'Letting go of five thousand dollars is dying,' said Glod. "'Fool! You can't take it with you!' Ashfeld scrambled for purchase on the wood. The cart shifted. "'It's going to be the other way round in a minute,' he muttered. "'So who,' said Cliff, as the cart sagged another inch, "'is holding Buddy?' There was a pause while the three counted their extremities and attachments there too. I... I think he might have gone over, said Glod. Four chords rang out. Buddy hung from a rear wheel, feet over the drop, and jerked as the music played an eight-note riff on his soul. Never age, never die... Live forever in that one last white-hot moment when the crowd screamed, when every note was a heartbeat, burn across the sky. You will never grow old. They will never say you died. That's the deal. You will be the greatest musician in the world. Live fast, die young. The music tugged at his soul. Buddy's legs swung up slowly and touched the rocks of the cliff. He braced himself, eyes shut, and pulled at the wheel. A hand touched his shoulder. No. Buddy's eyes snapped open. He turned his head and looked into Susan's face, and then up at the cart. What? he said, his voice slurred with shock. He let go with one hand and fumbled clumsily for the guitar strap, slipping it off his shoulder. The strings howled as he gripped the guitar's neck and flung it into the darkness. His other hand slipped on the freezing wheel, and he dropped into the gorge. There was a white blur. He landed heavily on something velvety and smelling of horse sweat. Susan steadied him with her free hand as she urged Binky upwards through the sleet. The horse alighted on the road, and Buddy slipped off into the mud. He raised himself on his elbows. You? Me, said Susan. Susan pulled the scythe out of its holster. The blades sprang out. Snowflakes that fell on it split gently into two halves without a pause in their descent. Let's get your friends, shall we? There was a friction in the air, as if the attention of the world were being focused. Death stared into the future. Oh, blast! Things were coming apart. The librarian had done his best, but mere bone and wood couldn't take this sort of strain. Feathers and beads whirled away and landed smoking in the road. A wheel parted company from its axle and bounced away, shedding spokes as the machine took a curve almost horizontally. It made no real difference. Something like a soul flickered in the air where the missing pieces had been. If you took a shining machine and shone a light on it so that there were gleams and highlights, and then took away the machine but left the light... Only the horse's skull remained, that and the rear wheel, which spun in forks now only of flickering light and was smouldering. The thing whirred past Dibbler, causing his horse to throw him into the ditch and bolt. Death was used to travelling fast. In theory, he was already everywhere, waiting for almost anything else. The fastest way to travel is to be there already. But he'd never been this fast while going this slow. The landscape had often been a blur, but never while it was only four inches from his knees on the bends. 
The cart shifted again. Now even Cliff was looking down into the darkness. Something touched his shoulder. Hang on to this, but don't touch the blade. Buddy leaned past. Glod, if you let go of the bag, I can... Don't even think about it. There's no pockets in a shroud, Glod. You got the wrong tailor, then. In the end, Buddy grabbed a spare leg and hauled. One at a time, clambering over one another, the band eased themselves back onto the road and turned to look at Susan. White horse, said Ashfeld. Black cloak. Scythe. Um, you can see her too, said Buddy. Hope we're not going to wish we couldn't, said Cliff. Susan held up a lifetimer and peered at it critically. I suppose it's too late to uh, cut some sort of a deal, said Glod. I'm just looking to see if you're dead or not, said Susan. I think I'm alive, said Glod. Hold on to that thought. They turned at a creaking sound. The cart slid forward and dropped into the gorge. There was a crash as it hit an outcrop halfway to the bottom, and then a more distant thud as it smashed into the rocks. There was a whoomp, and orange flames blossomed as the oil in the lamps exploded. Out of the debris, trailing flame, rolled a burning wheel. We would have been in that, said Cliff. You think maybe we're better off now, said Glod? Yeah, said Cliff, because we're not dying in the wreckage of a burning cart. Yes, but she looks a bit, er, uh, occult. Fine by me, I'll take occult over deep fried any day. Behind them, Buddy turned to Susan. I think I've worked it out, she said. The music twisted up history, I, I think. It's not supposed to be in our history. Um, can you remember where you got it from? Buddy just stared. When you've been saved from certain death by an attractive girl on a white horse, you don't expect a shopping quiz. A shop in Arkmore, Pork, said Cliff. A mysterious old shop. Mysterious as anything. There... Did you go back? Was it still there? Was it in the same place? Yes, said Cliff. No, said Glod. Lots of interesting merchandise that you wanted to pick up and learn more about? Yes, said Glod and Cliff together. Oh, said Susan, that kind of shop. I knew it didn't belong there, said Glod. Didn't I say it? Didn't I say it didn't belong there? I said it didn't belong here. I said it was Eldritch. I thought that meant oblong, said Ashfelt. Cliff held out his hand. It stopped snowing, he said. I dropped the thing into the gorge, said Buddy. I didn't need it any more. It must have smashed. No, said Susan. It's not as... The clouds. Now they look eldritch, said Glod, looking up. What? Oblong? said Ashfelt. They all felt it, a sensation that the walls had been removed from around the world. The air buzzed. What's this now? said Ashfelt, as they instinctively huddled together. You ought to know, said Glod. I thought you'd been everywhere and seen everything. White light cracked in the air. And then the air became light, white as moonlight, but as strong as sunlight. There was also a sound, like the roar of millions of voices. It said, Let me show you who I am. I am the music. Satchelmouth lit the coach lamps. 
Hurry up, man, shouted Cleet. We want to catch them, you know. <laughs> I, I, I don't see that it uh, matters much if they get away, Satchelmouth grumbled, climbing onto the coach as Cleet lashed the horses into motion. I mean, they're, they're, they're away. Uh, that's all that, that matters, isn't it? No, you saw them. They're the soul of all this trouble, said Cleet. We can't let this sort of thing go on. Satchelmouth glanced sideways. The thought was flooding into his mind, and not for the first time, that Mr. Cleet was not playing with a full orchestra, that he was one of those people who built their own hot madness out of sane and chilly parts. Satchelmouth was by no means averse to the finger foxtrot and the skull fandango, but he'd never murdered anyone, at least on purpose. Satchelmouth had been made aware that he had a soul, and though it had a few holes in it and was a little ragged around the edges, he cherished the hope that some day the god Reg would find him a place in a celestial combo. You didn't get the best gigs if you were a murderer. You probably had to play the viola. Um, how about if, if, if we leave it uh, right now, he said. They won't be back. Shut up. But, but the, 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 there's no point. The horses reared. The coach rocked. Something went past in a blur and vanished in the darkness, leaving a line of blue flames that flickered for a little while and then went out. Death was aware that at some point he would have to stop. But it was creeping up on him that in whatever dark vocabulary the ghost machine had been envisaged, the words slow down were as inconceivable as drive safely. It was not in its very nature to reduce speed in any circumstances other than the dramatically calamitous at the end of the third verse. That was the trouble with music with rocks in. It liked to do things its own way. Very slowly, still spinning, the front wheel rose off the ground. Absolute darkness filled the universe. A voice spake. Is that you, Cliff? Yep. Okay. Is this me, Glod? Yep, sounds like you. Ashfelt? It's me, Buddy. Glod? And uh, the uh, Lady in Black? Yes. Do you know where we are, miss? There was no ground under them, but Susan didn't feel that she was floating, she was simply standing. The fact that it was on nothing was a minor point. She wasn't falling because there was nowhere to fall to or from. She'd never been interested in geography, but she had a very strong feeling that this place was not locatable on any atlas. I don't know where our bodies are, she said carefully. Oh, good, said the voice of Glod. Really, I'm here, but we don't know where my body is. <laughs> How about my money? There was the sound of faint footsteps far away in the darkness. They approached slowly and deliberately and stopped. A voice said, one, 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 two, one, two. Then the footsteps went back into the distance. After a while, another voice said, one, two, three, four. And the universe came into being. It was wrong to call it a Big Bang. That would just be noise. And all that noise would create is more noise and a cosmos full of random particles. Matter exploded into being, apparently as chaos but in fact as a chord, the ultimate power chord. Everything altogether streaming out in one huge rush that contained within itself, like reverse fossils, everything that it was going to be. 
and zigzagging through the expanding cloud, alive, that first wild, live music. This had shape. It had spin, it had rhythm, it had a beat, and you could dance to it. Everything did. A voice right inside Susan's head said, And I will never die. She said aloud, There's a bit of you in everything that lives. Yes, I am the heartbeat, the backbeat. She still couldn't see the others. The light was streaming past her. But he threw away the guitar. I wanted him to live for me. You wanted him to die for you in the wreckage of the cart. What is the difference? He would be dead anyway. But to die in music, people will always remember the songs he never had the chance to sing, and they will be the greatest songs of all. Live your life in a moment, and then live forever. Don't fade away. Send us back. You never left. She blinked. They were still on the road. The air flickered and crackled and was full of wet snow. She looked around into Buddy's horrified face. We've got to get away. She held up a hand. It was transparent. Cliff had almost vanished. Glod was trying to grip the handle of the money bag, but his fingers were slipping through it. His face was full of the terror of death, or possibly of poverty. Susan shouted, He threw you away! That's not fair! A piercing blue light was heading up the road. No cart could move that fast. There was a roar like the scream of a camel who has just seen two bricks. The light reached the bend, skidded, hit a rock, and leapt into space over the gorge. There was just time for a hollow voice to say, Oh, bugger, before it hit the far wall in one great spreading circle of flame. Bones bounced and rolled down to the riverbed and were still. Susan spun around, scythe ready to swing, but the music was in the air, it had no soul to aim for. You could say to the universe, this is not fair, and the universe would say, oh, isn't it, sorry. You could save people, you could get there in the nick of time, and something could snap its fingers and say, no, it has to be this way, let me tell you how it has to be, this is how the legend has to go. She reached out and tried to take Buddy's hand. She could feel it, but only as a coldness. Can you hear me? she shouted above the triumphant chords. He nodded. It's, it's like a legend. It has to happen, and I can't stop it. How can I kill something like music? She ran to the edge of the gorge. The cart was well on fire. They wouldn't appear in it. They would have been in it. I can't stop it. It's not fair. She pounded at the air with her fists. Grandfather! Blue flames flickered fitfully on the rocks of the dry riverbed. A small finger bone rolled across the stones until it came up against another slightly larger bone. A third bone tumbled off a rock and joined them. In the semi-darkness there was a rattling among the stones and a handful of little white shapes bounced and tumbled between the rocks until a hand, index finger reaching for the sky, rose into the night. Then there was a series of deeper, more hollow noises as longer, larger things skipped end on end through the gloom. "'I was going to make it better!' shouted Susan. "'What's the good of being death if you have to obey idiot rules all the time?' "'Bring them back!' As Susan turned, a toe-bone hopped across the mud and scuttled into place somewhere under death's robe. He strode forward, snatched the scythe from Susan, and in one movement whirled it over his head and brought it down on the stone. The blade shattered. He reached down and picked up a fragment. It glittered in his fingers like a tiny star of blue ice. It was not a request. 
when the music spoke, the falling snow danced. You can't kill me. Death reached into his robe and brought out the guitar. Bits of it had broken off, but this didn't matter. The shape flickered in the air, the strings glowed. Death took a stance that Crash would have died to achieve and raised one hand. In his fingers the silver glinted. If light could have made a noise, it would have flashed ting. He wanted to be the greatest musician in the world. There has to be a law. Destiny runs its course. For once, death appeared not to smile. He brought his hand down on the strings. There was no sound. There was instead a cessation of sound, the end of a noise which Susan realised she'd been hearing all along, all the time, all her life. A kind of sound you never notice until it stops. The strings were still. There are millions of chords. There are millions of numbers, and everyone forgets the one that is zero. But without the zero, numbers are just arithmetic. Without the empty chord, music is just noise. Death played the empty chord. The beat slowed and began to weaken. The universe spun on, every atom of it. But soon the whirling would end, and the dancers would look around and wonder what to do next. It's not time for that. Play something else. I cannot. Death nodded towards Buddy. But he can. He threw the guitar towards Buddy. It passed right through him. Susan ran and snatched it up, holding it out. You've got to take it. You've got to play. You've got to start the music again. She strummed frantically at the strings. Buddy winced. Please, she shouted. Don't fade away. The music screamed in her head. Buddy managed to grasp the guitar, but stood looking at it as if he'd never seen it before. "'What'll happen if he doesn't play it?' said Glod. "'You'll all die in the wreckage.' "'And then,' said Death, "'the music will die, and the dance will end. "'The whole dance.' "'The ghostly dwarf gave a cough. <clears throat> "'We're getting paid for this number, right?' he said. "'You'll get the universe. "'And free beer?' "'Buddy held the guitar to him. "'His eyes met Susan's. "'He raised his hand and played.' The single chord ran out across the gorge and echoed back with strange harmonics. Thank you, said Death. He stepped forward and took the guitar. He moved suddenly and smashed the thing against a rock. The strings parted, and something accelerated away towards the snow and the stars. Death looked at the wreckage with some satisfaction. Now that's music with rocks in. He snapped his fingers. The moon rose over Ankh Morpork. The park was deserted. The silver light flowed over the wreckage of the stage and the mud and half-consumed sausages that marked the spot where the audience had been. Here and there it glinted off broken sound traps. And after a while some of the mud sat up and spat out some more mud. Crash? Jimbo? Scum? it said. Is that you, Noddy? said a sad shape hanging from one of the stage's few remaining beams. The mud pulled some more mud out of its ears. Right, where's Scum? I think they threw him into the lake. Is Crash alive? There was a groan from under a heap of wreckage. Pity, said Noddy, with feeling. A figure emerged out of the shadows, squelching. Crash half-crawled, half-fell out of the rubble. <laughs> You've got to admit, he mumbled, because at some stage in the performance a guitar had hit him in the teeth. That wolf, music with Roxine, 
All right, said Jimbo and slithered off his beam. But next time, thanks all the same, I'd rather try sex and drugs. My dad said he'd kill me if I took drugs, said Noddy. This is your brain on drugs, said Jimbo. No, this is your brain scum on this lump here. Oh, cheers, thanks. A painkiller would be favourite right now, said Jimbo. A little closer to the lake, a heap of sacking slid sideways. It's our chancellor. <clears throat> yes, Mr. Stibbons. I think someone trod on my hat. Uh, so what? It's still on my head. Ridcully sat up, easing the ache in his bones. Come on, lad, he said. Let's go home. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure that I'm interested in music anymore. It's a world of hurts. A coach rattled along the winding mountain road. Mr. Cleet was standing on the box, whipping the horses. Satchelmouth got unsteadily to his feet. The cliff edge was so close he could see right down into the darkness. I, I, I've just had about altogether too much of this by half, he shouted, and tried to snatch at the whip. Stop that! We'll never catch up with them, shouted Cleet. S so what? Who, who cares? I liked their music. Cleet turned. His expression was terrible. Traitor! The butt-end of the whip caught Satchelmouth in the stomach. He staggered back, clutched at the edge of the coach, and dropped. His outflung arm caught hold of what felt like a thin branch in the darkness. He swung wildly over the drop until his boots got a purchase on the rock, and his other hand gripped a broken fence post. He was just in time to see the cart rumble straight on. The road, on the other hand, curved sharply. Satchelmouth shut his eyes and held on tight until the last scream and crackle and splinter had died away. When he opened them, it was just in time to see a burning wheel bounce down the canyon. Blimey, he said. It was lucky there was something. His gaze went up. And up. Yes, it was, wasn't it? Mr. Cleet sat up in the ruins of the cart. It was clearly very much on fire. He was lucky, he told himself, to have survived that. A black-robed figure walked through the flames. Mr. Cleet looked at it. He'd never believed in this sort of thing. He never believed in anything. But if he had believed, he would have believed in someone bigger. He looked down at what he thought was his body and realised that he could see through it and that it was fading away. Oh, dear, he said. <laughs> the figure grinned and swung its tiny scythe. <laughs> Much later on, people went down into the canyon and sorted out the remains of Mr. Cleet from the remains of everything else. It wasn't very much. There were suggestions that he was some musician. Some musician had fled the city or something, hadn't he? Or was that something else? Anyway, he was dead now, wasn't he? No one took any notice of the other things. Stuff tended to congregate in the dry riverbed. There was a horse's skull and some feathers and beads, and a few pieces of guitar smashed open like an eggshell although it would be hard to say what had flown. Susan opened her eyes. She felt wind on her face. There were arms on either side of her. They were supporting her, while at the same time grasping the reins of a white horse. She leaned forwards. Clouds were scudding by far below. All right, she said, and now what happens? Death was silent for a moment. History tends to swing back into line. They are always patching it up. There are always some minor loose ends. I dare say some people will have some confused memories about a concert of sorts in the park. 
But what of it? They will remember things that did not happen. But they did happen. As well. Susan stared down at the dark landscape. Here and there were the lights of homesteads and small villages where people were getting on with their lives without the thought of what was passing by high over their heads. She envied them. So, she said, just for an example, you understand, what would happen to the band? Oh, they might be anywhere. Death glanced at the back of Susan's head. Take the boy, for example. Perhaps he left the big city. Perhaps he went somewhere else. Got a job just to make ends meet. Bided his time. Did it his way. But he was due in the drum that night. Not if he didn't go there. Can you do that? His life was due to end. You said you can't give life. Not me. You might. What do you mean? Life can be shared. But he's gone. It's not as though I'm ever likely to see him again. You know you will. How do you know that? You've always known. You remember everything. So do I. But you are human and your mind rebels for your own sake. Something goes across, though. Dreams, perhaps. Premonitions. Feelings. Some shadows are so long they arrive before the light. I don't think I understood any of that. Well, it has been a long day. More clouds passed underneath. Grandfather? Yes. You're back? It seems so. Busy, busy, busy. So I can stop. I don't think I was very good at it. Yes. But you've just broken a lot of laws. Perhaps they're sometimes only guidelines. But my parents still died. I couldn't have given them more life. I could only have given them immortality. They didn't think it was worth the price. I think I know what they mean. You're welcome to come and visit, of course. Thank you. You will always have a home there, if you want it. Really? I shall keep your room exactly as you left it. Thank you. A mess. Sorry? I can hardly see the floor. You could have tidied it up a bit. Sorry. The lights of Quirm glittered below. Binky touched down smoothly. Susan looked around at the dark school buildings. So I've also been here all the time, she said. Yes, the history of the last few days has been... different. You did quite well in your exams. Did I? Who sat them? You did. Oh, Susan shrugged. What grade did I get in logic? You got an A. Oh, come on. I always get A+. You should have revised more. Death swung up into the saddle. Just a minute, said Susan quickly. She knew she had to say it. Yes? What happened to, you know, changing the fate of one individual means changing the world? Sometimes the world needs changing. Oh, um, Grandfather? Yes? Uh, the swing, said Susan. The one down in the orchard. I mean, it was pretty good. A good swing. Really? I was just... Too young to appreciate it. You really liked it? It had style. I shouldn't think anyone else ever had one like it. Thank you. But 
All this doesn't alter anything, you know. The world is still full of stupid people. They don't use their brains. They don't seem to want to think straight. Unlike you, at least I make an effort. For example, if I've been here for the last few days, who's in my bed now? I think you just went out for a moonlight stroll. Oh, that's all right then. Death coughed. I suppose... Sorry? I know it's ridiculous, really. What is? I suppose you haven't got a kiss for your old granddad? Susan stared at him. The blue glow in death's eyes gradually faded, and as the light died, it sucked at her gaze so that it was dragged into the eye sockets and the darkness beyond, which went on and on forever. There was no word for it. Even eternity was a human idea. Giving it a name gave it a length. Admittedly, a very long one. But this darkness was what was left when eternity had given up. It was where death lived, alone. She reached up and pulled his head down and kissed the top of his skull. It was smooth and ivory white like a billiard ball. She turned and stared at the shadowy buildings in an attempt to hide her embarrassment. I just hope I remembered to leave a window open. Oh well, nothing for it. She had to know, even if she felt angry with herself for asking. Look, the, um, the people I met, do you know if I ever see them? When she turned back, there was nothing there. There were only a couple of hoof prints fading on the cobbles. There was no open window. She went around to the door and climbed the stairs in the darkness. Susan? Susan felt herself fading protectively, out of habit. She stopped it. There was no need for that. There had never been a need for that. A figure stood at the end of the passage in a circle of lamplight. Yes, Miss Butts? The headmistress peered at her as if waiting for her to do something. Are you all right, Miss Butts? The teacher rallied. Do you know it's gone midnight? For shame, and you're out of bed, and that is certainly not the school uniform. Susan looked down. It was always hard to get every little detail right. She was still wearing the black dress with lace. Yes, she said, that's right. She gave Miss Butts a bright, friendly smile. Well, uh, there are school rules, you know, said Miss Butts, but her tone was hesitant. Susan patted her on the arm. I think they're probably more like guidelines, don't you, you Lily? Miss Butts' mouth opened and shut, and Susan realised that the woman was actually quite short. She had a tall bearing and a tall voice and a tall manner, and was tall in every respect except height. Amazingly, she'd apparently been able to keep this a secret from people. But I'd better be off to bed, said Susan, her mind dancing on adrenaline. And you too. It's far too late to be wandering around drafty corridors at your age, don't you think? Last day tomorrow, too. You don't want to look tired when the parents arrive. Um, uh, yes, yes, uh, thank you, Susan. Susan gave the forlorn teacher another warm smile and headed for the dormitory, where she undressed in the dark and got between the sheets. The room was silent except for the sound of nine girls breathing quietly and the rhythmic muffled avalanche that was Princess Jade asleep. And after a while the sound of someone sobbing and trying not to be heard. It went on for a long time. There was a lot of catching up to do. Far above the world, death nodded. You could choose immortality or you could choose humanity. You had to do it for yourself. It was the last day of term, and therefore chaotic. 
Some girls were leaving early, there was a stream of parents of various races, and there was no question of there being any teaching. It was generally accepted all round that the rules were relaxed. Susan, Gloria and Princess Jade wandered down to the floral clock. It was a quarter to Daisy. Susan felt empty, but also stretched like a string. She was surprised sparks weren't coming from her fingertips. Gloria had bought a bag of fried fish from the shop in Three Roses. The smell of hot vinegar and solid cholesterol rose from the paper, without the taint of fried rot that normally gave the shop's produce its familiar edge. "'My father says I've got to go home and marry some troll,' said Jade. "'Hey, if there's any good fish bones in there, I'll have them.' "'Have you met him?' said Susan. "'No, but my father says he's got a great big mountain.' "'I wouldn't put up with that if I was you,' said Gloria, through a mouthful of fish. "'This is the century of the fruit bat, after all. "'I'd put my foot down right now and say no. Eh, Susan?' "'What?' said Susan, who'd been thinking of something else. "'Then, when everything had been repeated, she said, "'No, I'd see what he was like first. "'Perhaps he's quite nice. "'And then the mountain is a bonus.' "'Yes, that's logical. "'Didn't your dad send you a picture?' said Gloria. "'Oh, yes,' said Jade.' Well? Um, it had some nice crevices, said Jade thoughtfully, and a glacier that my father says is permanent even at midsummer. Gloria nodded approvingly. He sounds a nice boy. But I've always liked Crag from the next valley. Father hates him, but he's working very hard and saving up, and he's nearly got enough for his own bridge. Gloria sighed. Sometimes it's hard to be a woman, she said. She nudged Susan. Want some fish? I'm not hungry, thanks. It's really good. Not stale old stuff like it used to be. No, thanks. Gloria gave her another nudge. Want to go and get your own, then? She said, leering behind her beard. Why should I do that? Oh, quite a few girls have gone down there today, said the dwarf. She leaned closer. It's the new boy working there, she said. I'd swear he's elvish. Something inside Susan was plucked and went twang. She stood up. So that's what he meant. Things that haven't happened yet. What? Who? said Gloria. The shop in Three Roses Alley. That's right. The door to the wizard's house was open. The wizard had put a rocking chair in the doorway and was asleep in the sun. A raven was perched on his hat. Susan stopped and glared at it. And have you got any comment to make? Crouk, crouk, said the raven, and ruffled its feathers. Good said Susan. She walked on, aware that she was blushing. Behind her, a voice said, Ha! and she ignored it. There was a blur of movement among the debris in the gutter. Something hidden by a fish wrapper went, <laughs> Oh, yes, very funny, said Susan. She walked on, and then broke into a run. Death smiled and pushed aside the magnifying lens and turned away from the disc world to find Albert watching him. Just checking, he said. That's right, master, said Albert. I've saddled up, Binky. You understand, I was just checking. Right you are, master. How are you feeling now? Fine, master. Still got your bottle? Yes, master. It was on the shelf in Albert's bedroom. He followed Death out into the stable yard, helped him into the saddle, and passed up the scythe. And now... I must be going out, said Death. That's the ticket, master. So stop grinning like that. Yes, master. 
Death rode out, but found himself guiding the white horse down the track to the orchard. He stopped in front of one particular tree and stared at it for some time. Eventually he said, "'Looks perfectly logical to me.' Binky turned obediently away and trotted into the world. The lands and cities of it lay before him. Blue light flamed along the blade of the scythe. Death felt a tension on him. He looked up at the universe which was watching him with puzzled interest. A voice which only he heard said, "'So you're a rebel, little Death. Against what?' Death thought about it. If there was a snappy answer, he couldn't think of one. So he ignored it and rode towards the lives of humanity. They needed him. Somewhere in some other world, far away from the Discworld, someone tentatively picked up a musical instrument that echoed to the rhythm in their soul. It will never die. It's here to stay. That is the end of Soul Music by Terry Pratchett, and it was read by Nigel Planer.